Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On this episode of Alert, we will be speaking with Lucy Sherritt of the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network about the state of genetically modified organisms in Canada and the threats they pose. We will also be speaking with Richard Saunders of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade about the recent NATO summit and Canada's recently announced pledge to keep troops in Afghanistan until 2014. And we'll hear from Roland Penner on a Winnipeg politician and former provincial attorney general who's one of many political figures targeted by a secretive RCMP espionage operation operating during the Cold War. Here are the alert headlines for the week of November 25th, 2010. The federal government and Alberta are working to weaken climate policies in the United States and Europe in order to support the oil sands, according to environmental group Climate Action Network Canada. The group released a report November 22nd finding, quote, a concerted effort to weaken climate policies outside our borders with the aim of ensuring that no doors are closed to Canada's highly polluting tar sands. The coalition called the campaigning a secret oil sands advocacy strategy led by the Foreign Affairs Department. Indonesia plans to classify large areas of its remaining natural forests as degraded land in order to cut them down and receive nearly $1 billion of climate aid for replanting them with palm trees and biofuel crops, according to Greenpeace International. The environmental group says the result would be to massively expand Indonesia's palm, paper, and biofuel industries in the name of rehabilitating land, while at the same time allowing its powerful forestry industry to carry on business as usual and to collect international carbon funds. The report comes at a critical time in global climate talks, due to resume next week in Cancun, Mexico. The International Labour Organization says an Ontario ban on farm unions violates human rights of 100,000 migrant and domestic farm workers in the province. The decision by the Geneva-based agency comes in a ruling on a complaint filed in March 2009 by the United Food and Commercial Workers. The ILO ruling found that Ontario's Agricultural Employees Protection Act, which denies all Ontario agriculture workers the right to join a union and engage in collective bargaining, is a violation of human rights under two United Nations conventions. A United Nations spokesman has expressed concern that the special tribunal investigation into the assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri, the former Lebanese prime minister, could be influenced by a Canadian media report. In a report based on leaks, the CBC has said that evidence gathered by Lebanese police and later by UN-backed investigators strongly linked the Hezbollah group to the 2005 killing. CBC News said on Sunday it had obtained mobile telephone and other telecommunications evidence, which is at the core of the case. Several media reports have said that the UN tribunal is close to announcing indictments against Hezbollah members for the killing. A top United Nations official has said the international response to combat Haiti's growing cholera epidemic has been completely inadequate. 
Since the appeal was made over a week ago, the United Nations has received only $5 million, far less than the $164 million requested. Nigel Fisher, the UN's humanitarian coordinator in the country, said critical supplies and skills are urgently needed to deal with the epidemic, which has killed more than 1,200 people and infected at least 20,000. Fisher said the lackluster response is especially troubling, given that cholera is a curable disease if quickly treated. In Afghanistan, a new public opinion poll of young Afghan men in Kandahar and Helmand provinces has been released by the International Council on Security and Development. The poll found that 92% of young men in these regions knew nothing about the September 11th attacks in the United States. 40% think NATO forces are there to destroy Islam or Afghanistan itself. 61% believe that Afghan national security forces will not be able to cope without international support. And 56% suspect that Afghan policemen are helping the Taliban. WikiLeaks' next release will be seven times the size of the Iraq war logs, already the biggest leak in U.S. intelligence history. The organization made the announcement in a brief message posted to its followers on Twitter, giving no information about the content of the coming release or its exact timing. Although it isn't clear what WikiLeaks is planning to release next, it allegedly has a huge cache of classified U.S. State Department cables whose publication could give a behind-the-scenes look at American diplomacy around the world. Irish citizens are bracing for another round of sweeping budget cuts after the Irish government announced it was seeking a massive bailout for the country's banks from the European Union and International Monetary Fund. Bloomberg reports Ireland will request about $130 billion, about 60% of the size of its economy. The Irish bailout dwarfs the size of the Greek bailout in May. On Saturday, one of Ireland's biggest trade unions warned that the nation was on the brink of civil unrest if government officials imposed further cuts to the public sector. Residents of Dublin have already taken to the streets to oppose the bank bailout. The U.S. Senate has unanimously approved two multi-billion dollar settlements to resolve long-standing lawsuits over the mismanagement of Native American land trusts dating back to the 19th century and discrimination complaints filed by African American farmers against the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Some $3.4 billion will be paid out to more than 300,000 Native Americans to settle claims over unpaid royalties on seized lands. Black farmers will receive just more than $1.1 billion. Israel's parliament has passed a bill setting stringent new conditions before any withdrawal from the Golan Heights or East Jerusalem. The bill requires a two-thirds majority in the Knesset before any withdrawal could be approved. Failing that, the proposal would be subject to a national referendum. Analysts say the move could complicate peace efforts by making it more difficult for any Israeli government to make territorial withdrawals. The Palestinian government in the West Bank condemned the move. A Canadian court has begun hearings on whether Canada's anti-polygamy law violates rights to freedom of religion guaranteed by the Constitution. The case focuses on a breakaway Mormon sect alleged to practice plural marriage in British Columbia. Authorities have asked the court to affirm the ban is constitutional 
in order to prosecute alleged polygamists. Craig Jones, a lawyer for the provincial government, warned a British Columbia Supreme Court judge on Monday that if the law was overturned, Canada would become the only Western country to allow polygamy. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of November 25, 2010. Everyone's Downstream is an international conference in Edmonton on resistance to the tar sands. This year's themes include Tar Sands Go Global, Building Accountable Movements, and Ongoing Resistance, Communities Fighting Pipelines, Refineries, and Other Tar Sands Infrastructure. The conference is held at the Engineering, Teaching, and Learning Complex at the University of Alberta from November 25th to 28th. Go to everyonesdownstream.org for more details. Surviving a dangerous journey, 492 Tamil refugees arrived in BC after fleeing war and persecution in Sri Lanka. Three months later, the vast majority of the refugees remain in Canadian jails, facing endless hearings that have revealed incompetency, deliberate negligence, and racism of the system. Join No One is Illegal on November 27th in a rally and march to call for the immediate release of detained Tamil asylum seekers and an end to racist and restrictive refugee policies, including the recently tabled Bill C-49. Meet at the Vancouver Public Library at 1 o'clock p.m. On November 27th, at the Cecil Street Community Centre in Toronto, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty will be holding a party to celebrate the struggles and victories of the past 20 years. OCAP has fought its way through two decades of offensive capitalism that has presented great challenges to our movements and to building and sustaining effective resistance. The party starts at 6.30 and admission is by donation. The 2010 Canadian Labour International Film Festival continues in Toronto this weekend. There are over 50 films this year that document the struggle of workers all over the world. The festival runs on Saturday the 27th from 2 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m. and on Sunday the 28th from 2 o'clock to 8.30 p.m. For a list of films and locations, go to laborfilms.ca. Austerity measures stemming from the global financial crisis threaten to undermine public sector unions and the services they provide. Some critics argue that the unions have failed to politicize the crisis along class lines. Leading Canadian labor analyst Sam Gindin is hosting a teach-in on November 29th to explore the present crisis, its meaning, and how we might get beyond it. The teach-in begins at 3 o'clock p.m. and is held in room 321 in the Student Centre at York University Keele's campus. This year marks the fifth year of Canadians Against Israeli Apartheid organizing in Toronto, coordinating much of the work done in conjunction with the wider BDS movement. This half-decade-long effort is a testament to the consistency and dedication of activists from Toronto to Palestine and beyond who have committed themselves to dismantling the apartheid state. In recognition of our past achievements and with an eye to many more, friends, members, and allies are invited to attend the CAIA annual fundraiser on December 10th at the Blue Moon in Toronto. For more information, go to caiaweb.org. 
That was Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of November 25th, 2010. On November 23rd, the agribusiness company Monsanto announced the opening of a brand new canola breeding center on the University of Manitoba campus. Monsanto and the genetically engineered, or GE, crops they have patented have come under fire in recent years from a number of public interest groups. One of those groups is the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network, or CBAN. The coordinator of CBAN, Lucy Sherritt, is on the line with us right now to explain the concerns her group has with Canada's corporate and governmental push for this kind of technological innovation. So, Lucy, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, could could you maybe explain uh, you know, briefly uh, some of the concerns you believe Canadians should have with regard to the use of this uh, particular technology? Well, certainly we should all be concerned that the technology, genetic engineering, has been allowed into our food and agriculture system without any democratic debate in Canada. There's never been a parliamentary debate, and as consumers know, there's no labeling even on the shelves. So if consumers wanted to even avoid genetically engineered foods, they currently don't have that choice. Mm. And this is a, a very big indicator that there are some political decisions that have been made that are not in the interests of certainly of transparency, and it indicates that there's some big stakes involved. There's a lot of money to be made from genetic engineering, and that becomes very troublesome, especially if there's not the type of democracy that we would hope for. There's some very big corporations that make a lot of money from genetic engineering, and it's farmers and consumers who are bearing the risks, unfortunately. And there's just a lot of unknowns, actually. Well, then what is feeding the demand, then, for this particular uh, type of crop, this particular manipulation of uh, these, the genes of these organisms? Well, genetic engineering has always been a technology looking for a market. And the company Monsanto, which does account for 86% of all of the genetically engineered crops grown in the world, are owned by Monsanto, this one company, that, which is now the biggest seed company in the world. They've actually only commercialized two different types of genetically engineered crops, and that would be crops that are resistant to brand-name herbicides so that farmers can spray the crops even when the crops are young, or they can spray them more often, and it's therefore very convenient for farmers. So in that way, it facilitates industrial chemical farming. And the other is an insect-resistant crop, um, which means that if there's a pest infestation, um, pests trying to eat the crop will die because the, the plant itself is toxic. And so what we see is actually a technology that hasn't even fulfilled its own promise for the type of traits that it said consumers would find, nutritionally enhanced crops, um, crops that would be uh, drought tolerant. These don't exist yet. And instead what we have is soy and canola and corn and cotton that have have been genetically modified. And those are the four crops um, that are being grown, and mostly grown in the U.S., Canada, Argentina, Brazil, and a few other countries. And this is the problem with the lack of democracy, is that it's actually very hard for us to understand that genetic engineering isn't quite everywhere, although the types of crops that are grown, corn, canola, and soy, do end up in a lot of processed food ingredients. 
So then, who are who are these uh, the, the companies, or who are the, the where, where exactly are the markets for these uh, for this product? Well, most of the corn, canola, and soy that's been genetically engineered actually ends up in animal feed and um, processed ingredients. So it's on the margins of industrial agriculture. And now with the new biofuels regulations in Canada, actually our fuel tanks will be filled with 5% biofuels. And these will come from genetically engineered corn, at least for the moment, and biodiesel from genetically engineered canola and soy. So um, this is actually the picture of genetic engineering in North America at the moment. Mm-hmm. So why is it then that the uh, like the, the the governments that are supporting it I, I, it seems not to be very popular in Europe but uh, in, in Canada we seem to be very aggressively promoting this kind of uh, research and technology what, what what is your understanding for the the motivation there The Canadian government decided very early on to make a commitment to the biotechnology industry as an industry that would be an important economic driver and in doing so, the Canadian government um, produced regulations that are very favorable to the industry and refused to label products. This is in contrast to what happened in Europe, where European consumers found out about genetic engineering before the genetically engineered food was on grocery store shelves, and they lobbied successfully for labeling of products. And because there's labeling in Europe, it's very clear that European consumers actually won't buy the products. Mm. And in North America, we've never actually had that choice. So genetically engineered foods have been you know, forced onto the market. Consumers don't have a choice. And that's because we were never even told that genetically engineered foods were on the shelves. And by the time we found out and tried to lobby for labeling, Monsanto already had exerted a lot of influence over the government. Well, what about uh, farmers? Uh, like the, the, the farmers that have been... Uh, uh, compelled to plant this uh, kind of crop? Or how, how are they feeling about it? Do they, do they see any appeal in this kind of uh, technology? Why, why are they buying it? Well, a lot of farmers do buy genetically engineered corn and canola and soy in Canada. And the herbicide-tolerant crops are very convenient to use for those farmers who do uh, choose chemical farming. Uh, the problem with canola, as an example, is that actually most canola seed in Canada is genetically engineered, and it's increasingly hard with corn and soy also to find seeds that aren't genetically engineered, and that's because of the type of corporate concentration in the seed sector, and this is becoming a huge problem. It's a problem now in India with cotton as well, because Monsanto owns cotton seed companies as well, and that is a problem, and um, and. There are other farmers, like organic farmers, who are finding themselves impacted by genetically engineered seeds because of contamination. So even those farmers who don't choose to buy genetically engineered seeds are sometimes finding them in their seed stocks or on their land, and this is also causing a problem. And so there, there is a conflict in, um, in rural Canada sometimes around these seeds. Okay. Well, you, uh, there's a, a bill, a private member's bill coming down the pike. Uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? It's, it's designed to put some sort of resistance to 
genetically engineered uh, goods? Yeah, there there is a private member's bill that the NDP agriculture critic brought forward, and it's been debated already in the Agriculture Committee and is actually heading for a final vote this December. And the bill is very specific to the problem that some genetically engineered crops are not accepted in our export markets and that this is a very serious problem for our farmers if those crops are introduced. Because what happens now is the Canadian government actually doesn't care and has no mechanism to care if about economic issues or social issues moral issues when they choose to introduce a genetically engineered crop. So we know with genetically engineered wheat, for example, it would ruin Canada's international wheat market, and yet Canada was ready to introduce genetically engineered wheat. And this bill, Bill C-474, would just require that the government actually study the potential harm to export markets before genetically engineered alfalfa or any other genetically engineered crop is introduced. And the biotechnology industry has fought it very hard. The conservatives have fought it. And the liberals have been really wishy-washy because they also don't want to be seen as coming down on the side of farmers when that clearly means um, upsetting the interests of Monsanto. Because in this case, farmers would be given a voice by this Bill 474. I know as far as hurting our export markets are concerned, are all provinces across the country using this genetically modified produce? Actually, that's a very good question because while genetically engineered crops are grown in most provinces, actually in the Yukon and Prince Edward Island, there are no genetically engineered crops. And Prince Edward Island has found that very beneficial because they are selling non-genetically engineered canola to Japan because, of course, genetically engineered canola has wiped out organic canola across Canada, except in very geographically isolated areas like Prince Edward Island. And, of course, in the Yukon, canola is not grown or the other few genetically engineered crops. And there are Yukon farmers who are fighting to keep that province GE-free. Interesting. Okay, so the uh, the bill is coming down when exactly? Well, the bill will start its debate on December 1st, but by December 15th, there should be a final vote. The schedule is very unclear, but if people want to make a difference, they certainly it would be great if they would write to their member of parliament at the beginning of December. And we do have an action on our website at cban.ca slash 474, where people can write directly to their member of parliament if they want to through our website or just look there for some information. Well, I want to thank you, Lucy, for for sharing those thoughts with us, and uh, we'll have to see how this uh, develops. So thank you very much for joining us here on Alert. Thank you. And that was Lucy Sherritt. She is the coordinator of the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network. Recently, it was announced by the Canadian government that uh, Canada would be ending its combat mission in Afghanistan in 2011, but would remain in a training capacity until 2014. As the recent NATO summit uh, reaches its conclusion, we speak now with the coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade, Ottawa-based researcher, Richard Saunders. Richard, thanks for joining us here on Alert. Oh, thanks for having me on. Okay, so um, 
Mr. Saunders, uh, maybe you can tell us uh, what concerns you have about the Afghan mission itself, uh, the, the NATO mission. Well, like uh, so many Canadians, I'm, uh, I've, I've always been opposed to, uh, to the NATO mission, uh, the U.S. mission and Canada's complicity in it. Uh, I don't think we've ever really been told uh, by the mainstream media what the real reasons for this war are. We, we get a lot of uh, fabricated hype and pretexts about helping Afghan women, and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, that's not really what this this war is about. We can never believe what they tell us these wars are about. If they told us the truth, we we wouldn't ever agree to go. Well, then why are we in Afghanistan? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the $64 million question. Um, I think that we have to look at the geopolitical reasons for the war. Uh, Central Asia, controlling Central Asia is really a key, pivotal uh, thing that you need to do in order to control the the global economy and to be at the center of uh, the center of things. There's so much oil and natural gas in the Caspian Sea area. Um, it's just I think north. That's part of it, and there's you know everybody's probably heard in the peace movement heard about uh, the, the the idea of putting pipelines through Afghanistan, but you can't do that unless you secure the place and make sure that no one's going to destroy those pipelines in order to get the uh, the oil and natural gas to the Asian to the Asian market. So that this would be worth trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, so people are willing to do lots of things for that much money. So I think that's part of it. Another another thing that we don't hear much about uh, is the the importance of the drug trade, and that really needs to be factored into our understanding of this. Um, you know, again, we're talking about trillions of dollars. Uh, Afghanistan is a, is a major source of of the uh, of the opium that's used to make heroin, and that's we're talking trillions of dollars, uh, and all that money doesn't remain in the black market. All of that money gets filtered through the major banks. It all gets laundered and go- makes its way through the banks, and they need that money to keep them going, basically. So I think those are two factors that you have to consider. I don't think that we can believe the rhetoric of the United States, uh, you know, uh, that uh, that, uh, that the reason that they're going there are for, it's for humanitarian, you know, d- reasons to protect the human rights of, of women in, in Afghanistan. I mean, come on, that's just not what the United States goes to war for. And, you know, of course, the whole thing started with the fabrication, uh, you know, the, the, the lie, the pretext that it was all about, uh, about 9-11. It, by extending the mission, I mean, even... Even if we were just to stay so-called inside the wire and just train Afghan troops so that, and police so that they can prop up the c- corrupt Karzai regime, that's complicity in a, in a game that we really shouldn't have anything to do with. What uh, evidence is there? Uh, like you mentioned the opium before. We were told by the, our, our, the government uh, authorities that, the, uh, that our forces are trying to stop the drug trade. Is there any evidence that they're uh, uh, achieving that goal? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, in fact, from the UN statistics, we know that the Taliban actually reduced the uh, opium production in their final year in power. Uh, they reduced it to almost nothing. And then as soon as the Americans moved in and put the 
their allies, the Northern Alliance, into power, uh, the opium production went right up higher than it had ever been. Um, now, there are uh, some efforts to get rid of some opium production in Afghanistan, but I think that what we're looking at is just uh, is cosmetic, and it's just making a, it look as if they're uh, opposing opium production. They're certainly not wiping out the whole thing. It, I mean, Karzai's brother is a major uh, uh, drug uh, trafficker. Now, if, if the uh, Karzai government was interested in getting, getting rid of uh, drug trafficking, I mean, they could start by looking at his own family. Well, not notwithstanding, like uh, assuming you're correct in your assertions that there's more sin- sinister motives to uh, NATO's presence there. Right. What would you say to those people who argue, well, yeah, maybe they went in for these bad reasons, but at the same time, you know, that that, that doesn't mean that uh, the Taliban uh, is not a threat, and that they're, you know, that somehow we've got to be there to try to protect. You know the women and and from you know we we can't because I mean just because the NATO and, and may have yeah. negative uh, motivations that doesn't mean that ta- the Taliban isn't bad. So oh no, I'm not saying the Taliban are good. I mean they they may have. I mean it it does from the what I said. I mean that the UN does say that they got rid of the opium production mm-hmm. in their final year in power, but I mean they're not good at all. No, they're terrible. They're uh, they're. Uh, so what brutal. happens? What happens if but NATO we just replace them with a, a, a different yeah. set of brutal, corrupt drug lords? Uh, and so we've picked sides. We've picked one group of warlords over another. That's all. They may have better PR. The warlords that we pick. Okay. Well, so we 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 have the uh, the the NATO forces in a a training role uh, right. for it. now. What? Would that mean in practical terms, in terms of what uh, what that's going to mean for the Afghan people? I mean, maybe uh, NATO forces will be uh, less uh, at in harm's way. But uh, what would you say about these the training role in terms of an overall mission and and what yeah. that would mean for the Afghan people? Well, I don't think the Afghan Afghan people really trust their government. They don't. They don't trust their government. They don't. Uh, they didn't elect them. You know, it's uh, it was a it was a fraudulent election. Um, I don't think they trust their military. I don't think they feel safe uh, with that military. Um, so the the Canadian mission of training uh, Afghan soldiers and Afghan police, it's I mean I've seen it described as non-combat training, but it's actually combat training. You know, I mean it's training to do combat. So it's a it's a complicity in a, in uh, perpetuating this uh, this corrupt regime. It's a way of propping up this uh, this Karzai government. Whether we're in there with our own troops uh, doing that, or whether we've just trained Afghan troops to do that. Okay. The, you know, neither is a good good thing for us to be doing. Okay, just uh, one last question. Uh, given the, the realities that we've seen, and we've already been told that we're going to be leaving in 2011, and it turns out we're not really leaving, what are the prospects that uh, we will actually be leaving in 2014, and uh, or ever for that matter? I don't think the prospects are good that we're going to be leaving in 2014. I don't think we should be even be surprised that the mission is being extended. And I, I think that it's a slippery slope and uh, we sort of have 
kept our foot in the door there. I don't, I don't think that even this non-combat training inside the wire is going to turn out to be that. I think it's going to turn out to be uh, sort of more that this, these thousand troops over there may be doing things like mentoring Afghan troops in actual operations. That's another thing that might happen is that in order to train them, you take them out on, on, uh, on operations. And so it's sort of operational training, you know, um, that is in effect combat. Um, the other, the other thing that we have to consider, and whether in uh, trying to wonder whether this thing is going to be extended again, is the fact that the liberals and the conservatives are pretty much turning from the same page. I mean, the liberals have been talking about. I mean, their foreign policy platform includes this very thing that the conservatives are calling for now. And uh, the conservatives would never have made this uh, announcement that they're going to keep keep a thousand troops there in this new training role if they didn't know that the liberals were going to support them on it. Uh, so even if there is a vote in the House, which they're all talking about, oh, there should be a vote, Parliament should decide, and and that's true, Parliament should de- decide, but even if there is a vote, the Liberals, for the most part, especially the ones that hold the key powerful positions, are going to vote in favor of this. They, it, it, the Conservatives and Liberal, I mean, Bob Ray was actually clapping uh, for some of Harper's responses to the, the reasons, like when he was explaining why our troops should stay there in this training role, Bob Ray was actually clapping. Mm. You know, the Liberals and the Conservatives, again, are proving themselves to be pretty much the same. Well, I have to uh, cut so it that off. Means, that means that they're going to, yeah. uh, you know, we may be cut out for a lot longer, uh, a presence in Afghanistan for a lot longer than uh, 2014. Well, on that rather discouraging note, uh, <laughs> Richard, I, I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your views and your analysis with us here on Alert. Okay, well, I hope I put in my two cents worth. It was worth it. Okay, it was worth it to us as well. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Richard Saunders is the coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade, and he joined us here on Alert. Roland Penner is one of the 50,000 individuals targeted by ProFunk, the prominent functionaries of the Communist Party, a highly secretive espionage operation and internment plan. In October, CBC's Fifth Estate aired shows on this secret contingency plan, which allowed police to round up and indefinitely detain Canadians believed to be communist sympathizers. The plan was initiated by RCMP Commissioner Stuart Taylor Wood in 1950 and was not withdrawn until 1983. Roland Penner was ultimately elected to the Manitoba legislature as a new Democrat and appointed Attorney General in 1981. In 1988, he was appointed Dean of the Law School at the University of Manitoba and in 2007 published A Glowing Dream, a memoir. And he joins us now from his home. So, uh, good afternoon, Mr. Penner. Good afternoon. Okay, so, Roland Penner, when did you find out that you were targeted by this... uh, espionage operation? Not until I was contacted by the producers of uh, Fifth Estate. <laughs> so uh, how, do you, what, how do you feel you 
came to be on that list? What did you do that could have been so provocative that you would have been included there? Well, you know, I I never ever a mild mannered person. I never did anything provocative. Certainly, I held left wing uh, political views, indeed, uh, for a considerable period of time. Having been born in a communist household, I was a communist and a member of the Labour Progressive Party until the late fifties, early sixties. Uh, but uh, in all of that period of time. Uh, anybody would be hard put to find anything that I did or said that could come anywhere near being uh, a threat to the safety of the state. Now, uh, I, I remember back, uh, you know, from history that uh, back, especially in the ninth. This is during the the Cold War period, and there was a lot of uh, what seems, at least in retrospect, to be hysteria about communism, particularly in the United States. Uh, uh, and uh, it, it seems as if this whole pro-funk operation uh, was a kind of a, an extension of that whole mentality. Would you agree with that? Oh, well, yes. There are so many similarities to McCarthyism. Uh, for example, that, that figure of, um, that was on the list to be uh, rounded up and uh, interned uh, in some way or another of uh, 50,000 is uh, absolutely ridiculous, and what it means uh, is that uh, they were targeting anybody uh, who, because um, uh, the Labour Progressive Party, the Communist Party, during all of the period of uh, the pro-funk uh, was, in, was in existence, uh, couldn't have been more than a couple of thousand, and they were really targeting anybody who might have been a subscriber to a left-wing paper, or uh, if it's that large a number, uh, anybody who signed a petition, let's say, with respect to um, nuclear disarmament or anything like that. And the thing that ultimately brought McCarthy down was uh, the uh, totally exaggerated, hysterical, and you use the word correctly, hysteria, hysterical view of um, uh, anybody who was not uh, too uh, well to the right of center and... Uh, a conservative or evangelist uh, was uh, one of those sneaky communists under the bed. Mm. Now, you you were very much uh, a supporter of of left of center causes uh, during that period of time. Yeah, sure, I was. Well, do you do you find that uh, because of this anti-communist uh, mentality that that's been a major uh, that that has subverted attempts to uh, create a more progressive uh, society as a result of you know, this sort of well you you you're quite right because um, uh, those in the upper levels of uh, security uh, organizations bureaucracy and operations who are smart enough and I really can't believe there are many who are very smart at all uh, aren't uh, really uh, interested in, they know, surely they know that there were, were very small numbers of people who were uh, communists, actually, and that uh, those people in, in no way constituted any threat. But, uh, you know, the fear-mongering, to use that phrase, I think, uh, correctly, the uh, the hysteria scares a lot of uh, well-meaning people away from any left-of-center causes, and it's, I think, ultimately designed to do that. Hmm. Now, 
you would be uh, very acquainted. I mean, between your own experiences and the people with whom you were acquainted, uh, do you, uh, looking back at some of the more tumultuous times, for instance, the time of the uh, the FLQ crisis, is there any uh, indication that uh, this uh, pro-funk program may have become uh, operational during any of those times? Either, no. No? Uh, no, uh, because, uh, uh, you know... Um, uh, uh, sort of uh, hysterical as they might have been, uh, I'll use that term again, I'm um, sure that there was no one in uh, the RCMP, because uh, CSIS was not yet in existence in 1970, could possibly have uh, believed uh, that there was any link whatsoever between the FLQ and, uh, and uh, communist or communist sympathizers. And indeed, to the best of my knowledge, uh, no one, none of the over 500 people who were rounded up under the uh, War Measures Act uh, in October 1970 were uh, left-wing people. They were artists uh, and and uh, sovereignists and uh, Quebec nationalists, uh, uh, that sort of thing. But, but they were not uh, themselves the ones rounded up uh, were not considered to be uh, left-wing or communists. So the pro-funk wouldn't have come into operation in that instance, and there can't be any other instance that I can think of uh, where um, they would uh, pull the plug and uh, let loose the, uh, you know, cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war. Well, they, you, you, it could be said that uh, post-9-11 that, uh, that terrorism has become the new communism and maybe the same kind of hysteria that was generated around stopping communists is now being invoked to, uh, to stop terrorism. And we've seen uh, you know, anti-terrorism laws being passed. There was a, a, the G20 summit where there was a, a long list of people who were uh, apparently uh, arrested without uh, charge and detained. I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts and concerns are in terms of this kind of program being resurrected uh, with this new uh, you know, a- anti-terrorism. I, I, no, uh, I don't um, think so. And it cannot be uh, uh, for a number of reasons, and they know it. That is, since um, the, the charter came into existence, and don't forget, uh, it was uh, uh, it was proclaimed in in uh, April of uh, 1982, when Profan came to an end shortly thereafter. And I think one of the reasons Profan came to an end is they knew they could not possibly withstand a charter challenge in any of the measures they proposed to take against suspect causes. Mm. So in the era of the Charter, we're playing at a different ballgame, thank goodness, and Bill C-36, the uh, Anti-Terrorist Act, uh, has only been really used uh, in one or two, uh, on one or two occasions, and uh, uh, the courts uh, and uh, the rule of law does prevail in Canada, and the courts and the judges have been very careful uh, to, to uh, insist that any action that is taken against a person or an organization uh, alleged to be terrorist or to have terrorist uh, connections, um, uh, the evidence has to be uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, Roland Penner, we really appreciate your sharing your thoughts and your experience with us here uh, on Alert, and so I want to Thank you very much for joining us in this very uh, important discussion. Thank you. And that was uh, Roland Penner, who's uh, one of the individuals targeted by the pro-funk
uh, espionage operation from uh, the 1950s to 1983, and he joined us here on Alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a man going round taking names. Mm. There's a man going round taking names. He taken my mama's name and he left my heart in vain. There's a man going round taking names. Yeah. There's a man going round taking names. Some man gone round taking names. He taken my brother's name. To 
begin the morning. The screw was balling. Get up, you bowsy, and clean out your cell. And the old triangle goes Last night might have been okay if he'd been white. Oh, oh, oh. Now Charlie and the white man's lord cross swords many times before. So one of the coppers who pulled him in bruised his hand on Charlie's chin. Oh, oh, oh. Now Charlie was no diplomat, he hauled off and punched a copper back. That was Charlie's first mistake The second was calling the judge Snowflake Oh, oh, oh Poor bucket Charlie's back in jail Oh, oh, oh Got no money to pay his bail Oh, oh, oh The judge looked down with cold blue eyes His contempt was undisguised Why did you hit the constable, said he Oh, said Charlie, he hit me Oh, oh my duty set the judge to keep people like you off city streets. No one is safe until I do. I'm gonna make an example of you. Oh, oh, oh. Five thousand dollars is your bail. It's either that or three months jail. Oh, said Charlie, I can't pay. Right, said the judge, take him away. Oh, oh, oh. Poor Bugger Charlie's back in jail. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Got no money to pay his bill. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Charlie's in the cells, fifteen by ten, with a bucket, a blanket, and two coolie men. One two dollar flagon of rot gut wine. Charlie's due in three months' time. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Three poor bloody coolies locked in the zoo. One got paroled, and then there was two. Another got sick and that left one He hanged himself and then there was none ooh, 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 ooh. 
they found Charlie hanging From the bars in the window Shirt wrapped round his neck Too far from his people Too far from the dream And too far down the wrong road To ever turn back You were caught on the shore As the white tide was rising You were drowning from the moment You drew your first breath Now your voice has been lost In the sound of their singing As they pointed the bone And they sung you to death
woke up this morning with a toothache again. And I think I'm beginning to understand pain. Or what does it matter, an impacted tooth, if it helps me to understand beauty and truth? Since no dentist can tell me what it's all about, I'll just contemplate truth till my teeth all fall out. Oh, tantric mantra, treetop tall. I won't you kindly turn your dharma down. Woo! Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days was prepared by Ben Wood. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.